Turn in your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. The first Noel, the angels did say, was to certain poor shepherds asleep with their flock. The Noel is an interesting word. It, in some languages, is the word for Christmas itself. But in English, it is the word for the announcement pertaining to Christmas. And that's what we have before us in Luke chapter 2, the story of, first of all, the birth of Christ, and then the very first announcement of the birth of Christ to the shepherds. And isn't it interesting that God would determine that it was worth putting into his scriptures an account of who that announcement was first made to. And it was made to shepherds. Now, we are going to look together at this Song of the Angels, which is called the Gloria. And it consists of only one verse, verse 14, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So I'm going to read the passage, uh, beginning actually with verse 1 and the birth of our Lord. Pray, and then we're going to look at four elements of this story. The occasion of the song and why it was announced to the shepherds of all people. <clears throat> then the song itself, and finally, what followed. So I will be reading from verse 1 down through verse 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with his wife, with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And when they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. <clears throat> and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you... <clears throat> Excuse me. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there were with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Excuse me. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as had been told to them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, this is truly a wonderful season. Its reality really is beyond our comprehension. That you would send your only Son, who is himself, second part of the Holy Godhead, to take on human flesh and enter into human history. But Father, we know that this was done as an expression of your love for us to meet our deepest needs and to bring us to yourself. And so as we look together at this passage, we would pray that you would bless our time now together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin by looking at the circumstances um, in which this song of the angels is given. And we could start by looking at the angels, but we're going to look a little more broadly. There's another old hymn that sums up the condition of Israel very, very well. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. These were not good days for the nation of Israel. They were an occupied land. Verse 1 of this chapter mentions Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the entire world, the emperor of the Roman Empire. And indeed, Israel was under the heel of Rome. They had lost the right of self-government. They had lost all individual rights and civil rights. 
What is so common to us that we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights was totally a foreign concept to the Israelites during this time because the Jews had no rights under Roman law. Let me give you two examples. The reason that the census was taken was for the purpose of taxation. This gave Caesar a good idea of how much tax he should be able to expect to draw from this province and all other provinces of the Roman Empire. And this money was to be gathered by tax collectors. Now, tax collectors in the Roman Empire were not paid by the empire. And you might think, well, well, that's a great thing. But no, it really wasn't. Because the way they earned their living was they determined how much they deserved. So you would come to, play, to pay your allotted tax, and then the tax collector would add to that what he felt he deserved. What limitations were placed upon how much the tax collector could gather from you above and beyond your taxes? Basically, no limit at all. But it gets worse. People who are not believers, but read the Bible, maybe even study the Bible to understand it better, and now I'm speaking of people uh, like atheists, secularists, even those who have embraced liberal theology. They use as their measuring stick for truth science. And therefore, anything that does not fit with science, that would seem to be contrary to what science teaches, is deemed untrue. And so they engage in a process known as demythologizing the Bible. That is, anything that they find that would be of a supernatural nature, which does not fit with science, by definition, they determine to be false. And one of the chief beliefs that we hold, that they object to most strongly, is the virgin birth. And so they have come up with other explanations of how Jesus was conceived. And one of the most common beliefs is that the father of Jesus was a Roman soldier. And you might wonder, how in the world could they come up with that? Well, the, the problem is that that occurrence was not that uncommon. You've all heard the saying, to the victor belong the spoils. That includes physical goods and human goods. In other words, they could take whatever they wanted anytime they wanted. I mean, this is so very totally contrary to what we see today. I uh, 
I went to the highest source I could find to be sure I was correct in what I understand is true within the armed forces. Did you know that we have a judge advocate with the Navy right here in our congregation? Our director of children's ministries, Nathan, his wife, Allison, is a judge advocate with the Navy. And so I talked to Allison and I asked her, what would happen if we would have armed forces stationed in another country and they were to assault a civilian in that country? And without hesitation, she told me, well, as soon as the authorities would find out, there would be a trial. And if that person were found guilty, he could be lowered in his rank. He could be court-martialed. He could even receive a dishonorable discharge. And it could be, in addition to that, he may suffer jail time up to life in prison. This could never happen with the Roman army in relationship to the lands that they occupied. It was totally, totally unheard of. It has been said that Christianity made the world nicer. And that's very true. And this is one very good example of that, except that this would come about over a thousand years later. But this was the situation that the Israelites were in under the Roman Empire. They had no recourse, no opportunity for retribution. Is it any wonder that they longed and longed for a deliverer, for the Messiah to come? And that brings us to the shepherds. And following the circumstances of the birth of Christ that we read in the opening verses of this chapter, Luke casually mentions that in this same region, there were also shepherds tending to their flock by night. And it was to them that the angels announced the birth of Christ. Now imagine, they are the very first ones to learn that the Christ had been born. Elizabeth knew that Mary was expecting and knew roughly when Jesus would be born, but there was no way she could know the exact day. It was only to the shepherds who first learned of the birth of the baby Christ. When we think of being awed and being wondered, a sense of wonder comes when our expectations are exceeded. Wonder comes when reality jolts our senses. So this morning, I would like you to think about this. I would like you to think, if you were God, how would you have brought Christ into the world? Or let's say you're writing a novel. 
How would the story unfold that you would be writing about this event? Now, to begin with, Jesus didn't necessarily have to come as a baby. Oh, I'm well aware of the prophecy in Isaiah, but had God determined to do it another way, the prophecy would have been different. We have, for instance, in the Old Testament, this figure referred to as the angel of the Lord. Not an angel, but the angel of the Lord. He appears about a dozen times in the Old Testament. And in fact, one of the times that he appears is in Joshua chapter 5, right before the Jews circled Jericho in their attack of the city by the power of God. And this figure referred to as the captain of the Lord's host appears to Joshua. He is an awesome figure with sword drawn. And then he says to Joshua, remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. Does that ring a bell? Can you remember hearing that before in the Old Testament? Like when Moses was before the burning bush and the burning bush says to him, Moses, remove your sandals, for the ground upon which you stand is holy. This captain of the Lord's host is God himself. No doubt the second person of the Trinity, because it always seems to be the role of the second person of the Trinity to reveal the Godhead to mankind. And these are what are known as theophanies. They are appearances, physical appearances of God before Jesus took on human flesh through the incarnation. Now, it would seem to me that this would be a, a very good way for the Messiah to appear upon the earth. This would be much more in harmony with the expectation of most Israelites a deliverer, a Messiah who would rid them once and for all of Roman rule. But that's not what God had in mind. And instead, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, enters into this world as a helpless baby boy. Well, then, let's think about where, okay, so he's going to be a baby. Let's think about where he should be born. Certainly, he deserves the most phenomenal residence or structure that we could conceive of that would have existed in that day. What would that have been? My first thoughts would be, the palace of Caesar himself. This place was so spatial, it actually had two courtyards, each totally surrounded by porticos or porches with adjoining rooms. The place was massive. I mean, it's no wonder that in Las Vegas there's a casino called Caesar's Palace. This place was incredible. This would be a place fit 
for the birth of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Does it make sense? Well, that's once again not quite what God had in mind. But when you think about it, Rome is just too remote. Because after all, first and foremost, he is the one who is born king of the Jews. So Rome is a little bit too remote for him to be born. So, well, it would make sense then for him to be born in the capital of Israel, in Jerusalem, a magnificent city with the temple, one of the, the most marvelous structures of its time. That would be a suitable place for him to be born. But that's not quite what God had in mind either. Instead, he was going to be born in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, Ephrata. If you've ever wondered why that expression is there, there was another town of Bethlehem in the, in the land of Zebulun, and so that the two wouldn't be confused, this one was named in its full name, Bethlehem Ephrata. In our Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, is exactly right. Maybe a few hundred people, very small. And in Micah too, as we already heard read this morning, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Actually, that word clans is the word in Hebrew for thousands. And when the Jews entered the promised land, each tribe was broken down into groups of a thousand. No doubt a thousand men, uh, so that they would know how many they would have if they need to muster troops if it was necessary to go into battle. And the thought here is that Bethlehem, you're just too little to produce a thousand men. And even in Joshua chapter 15, when there's a listing of all the cities in Judah that were part of that land that was given to the tribe of Judah, Bethlehem is not even mentioned. Again, because it's just too small. But Micah also did go on to say that from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Well, what about the family uh, to which this Messiah would be born? If he's going to be born in Bethlehem, surely he should be born to the most prestigious family in Bethlehem. After all, just think about who this baby is. No, and in fact, he's not even born to a resident of Bethlehem. He is born to a Galilean 
Someone from Galilee? Now, if you understand the geography of the Holy Land, it's like three territories, one stacked upon the other. To the north is Galilee. In the center is Samaria. To the south is Judah. To the west is the Mediterranean Sea. To the east is first the Sea of Galilee. From it flows the Jordan River down to the Dead Sea. Galilee was considered to be the backwoods of Israel. Backwoods and backward. Why, they even spoke in a rather strange way. Much like if someone from the deep south were to go to New York City, and how would you distinguish this person as not being a New Yorker? Well, as soon as he would open his mouth to say something like, can y'all tell me where Wall Street is? You know immediately he's not from around here. And that's the way Galileans were viewed. They were far to the north, far removed from the temple. The religious elite in Israel questioned if they strictly followed the laws of the Old Testament. They just were looked down upon. And God chose a Galilean woman, a young woman, totally unknown, no credentials to speak of, about to marry a man who was no better known than she, these were to become the ones who would bring into, create, into the world the Messiah? Well, at least he should be born in a place in Bethlehem worthy of who he is. And of course, we're told there was no room for him in the inn. Now, this word inn is kind of an interesting word. It's only used three times in the entire New Testament, and the other times both refer to the upper room, the, the guest room where Jesus sought to have the Last Supper with his disciples. So rather than referring to a public inn, this might well refer to a guest room, perhaps in a relative's home. Now, we know that Joseph was of the family of David, and as they would come to Jerusalem uh, for the high holy days, they probably would visit their relatives in Bethlehem. It was only six miles away from Jerusalem. Could have very, very easily been done. And it could have been that they hoped to stay with a relative, but maybe another relative got there first, and there was no room for them in the guest room. But seeing Mary's condition, it was granted to them that they could stay in what was either a stable or a cave. It's interesting. We assume it's a stable, but the text doesn't tell us that. 
It just tells us of the manger. And mangers are not out in the middle of nowhere. They're not open to the elements. They're under something for protection so that the food doesn't rot away. So either a manger or in a cave, Eastern Orthodox believers, for instance, believe it was a cave. And we just don't know for sure one way or another. But there we have it. To parents, uh, totally unknown, in a situation where they can't even be, where the Christ child cannot even be born in a home, it seems like at every possible juncture, with every possible detail of this story, it turns out to be something totally different from what we would expect based on who this baby is that's being born. But do you know that in all of that, there is a consistency. There is a consistent thread that is woven throughout this story of humility and humbleness of humility and humbleness. So what about the shepherds? How do they fit into this picture? We tend to have a very idyllic picture of shepherds in our mind caring for their flocks. But that wasn't so much the case in the first century. It's possible, I, there, there are some reports, some believe that they were practically outcasts of society. I don't believe it was that bad. But they were not very high up on the social ladder either. And again, the religious leaders, because of their situation, they were not able to follow a lot of the rituals in the Torah, such as of washings and so on and so forth. And it was believed that they really didn't keep the law very well. And in many other ways, oftentimes shepherds were poor. They were not exactly what you would call skilled labor. And oftentimes poor. And do you see how this fits the pattern of everything else that pertains to the birth of Christ. And you know what all of that says to you and to me? The Messiah came not just for the prosperous, not just for the well-known, not just for the successful and the rich, but he came for the poor. He came for the janitor as much as for the doctor, for the coal miner as much as for the lawyer, for the homeless as much as for the CEO. There is no one so low on the social ladder that they're below what Christ came to do and for whom he came to save. Regardless of one's ethnicity, beliefs, social status, 
God intended for the gospel to be made to all. But there is another possibility here. As I mentioned before, Bethlehem was only six miles away from Jerusalem. And there were a lot of lambs that were sacrificed at the temple. Why, there was a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice every day. That comes to 730 lambs every year. It's a lot of lambs, isn't it? But in comparison to Passover, the greatest demand for Passover, greatest demand for lambs was at Passover. You've all heard of the Paschal lamb, the lamb that would be sacrificed and eaten in every Jewish household as part of the celebration of Passover. How many lambs do you think would have been sacrificed every year at the temple for Passover? A thousand? Ten thousand? The first century Jewish historian Josephus said that approximately 265,000 lambs were sacrificed every Passover. That's a lot of lambs. Now, I can tell you where those lambs were not raised. They were not raised in the streets of Jerusalem. They needed places to graze. And so all around Jerusalem, temple lambs were being raised and cared for. Were these temple lambs? Were these temple shepherds? We don't really have any way of knowing. But the thought is fascinating, isn't it? That the first announcement of the birth of Christ would have been those who cared for the lambs that would be sacrificed at the temple, which pointed to the one who would come and ultimately be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. We have no way of knowing, but it's, it's worth pondering and thinking about. Now, when it comes to the announcement of the angels, as we have recorded here in our text, no doubt it was a very, very dark night. No lights from any nearby town, but a countless number of bright stars in the sky. You know, Montana is called Big Sky Country, and I've been to Montana several times, and they don't get a lot of rain there, so you don't have many cloudy days. And when you go out at night and you look up at that sky, it is something to behold. It is just incredible, the number of stars that fill the sky. That is much like what these shepherds would have seen There was probably, the air was probably still, but with a chill in the air, the sheep were sleeping peacefully, and the shepherds, probably some sleeping, but those that were awake, keeping watch over their sheep, 
were talking softly among themselves. It was a night like so many others. Until a dazzling, white, bright figure appears before them. And the scriptures say they were terribly afraid. Now, it's interesting to compare this with Mary. You remember that Mary, when visited by the angel Gabriel, was very fearful too, but not because of the appearance of the angel, but because of what he said. That was not the case here. These shepherds were just terrified by the appearance of the angel. And the angel says to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find him wrapped in swaddling clothes, swaddling cloths, and lying in a manger. And then suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Now just think for a moment what they then saw next. Angels from horizon to horizon filling the sky. Now what if those angels were, let's say, five, six hundred feet in the sky? That'd be quite an impressive spectacle, wouldn't it? Angels shoulder to shoulder from one edge of the horizon to the other. Also in dazzling white garb. But what if instead of five or six hundred feet above you, they were only a hundred feet or 50 feet or just 25 feet, almost so close that you could reach out and touch them. You could see the details of their face. You could hear their wings gently flapping to stay afloat in the air, shoulder to shoulder, as far as you could see. And together, they cry out, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. <sighs> My wife Mary sings with the Williamsburg Choral Guild. And they just had a concert last Sunday. And from that, the very first note they sang, it was rich, it was powerful, it was strong, it was beautiful. But that would pale in significance to what these shepherds heard from these angels. And as we look at what they said, it's just one verse, two parts. To God, glory to God in the highest, 
I'm sure they just couldn't get over what had just happened because they understood full well what it meant for and who this baby was, for him to take on human flesh, the eternal second person of the Trinity. All they could do was give glory to God. And then, secondly, the second part of this song is addressed to man, or is about man, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the most personal of the three songs we have seen so far in the Gospel of Luke. In spite of all the craziness in the world around us, in spite of the divisions that we see and just everything that is happening in this country and in this world today, you and I are promised God's peace here and now. God's shalom, which means more than just peace. It means wholeness. It, it means that everything is, is well, everything is good in, in our life. And this is what we can have when we are pleasing to God. The angels left. They didn't have to tell the shepherds to go to Bethlehem. They said, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. And we're told that they went with haste. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger, just as it had been told to them. And notice, and then it says, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. These shepherds became the first evangelists, the first ones to tell others about the Christ. And note what is said about Mary. She treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Very much like her response, even when she heard from the angel something that troubled her, she thought about what these things meant. Took these things, internalized them, and dwelled with them. And then we see the shepherds returning to where they had been, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard. Isn't it interesting? This is just the reverse of what we see in the Song of the Angels, which, by the way, is called the Gloria. In the Gloria, first praise to God and then a word concerning man. The shepherds take the word of the birth of Christ to their fellow men and also end up praising God. Now, one more th thought, and on this I want to close. We saw with the birth of John the Baptist to Elizabeth, her neighbors and relatives were with her praising God 
for her, the birth of her son. They knew that this was a very special birth. It was by the power of God. And they praised and worshiped God with her for him. And here we see the shepherds telling others all that they had seen and making known all that they had heard and all wondered at what the shepherds told them. Now fast forward about 30 years. Where were all these people when Jesus began his public ministry? We read nothing. Nothing of them. Wouldn't you think that they would tell their friends, their children? There was much anticipation for the coming of the Messiah when Jesus began his public ministry, still. But there seems to be no connection with the account of the Nativity. And it's interesting that Jesus, near the end of his public ministry, in Luke 18, said this, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It just seems to be part of our nature that is rich and good and incredible as some things can be, we mentally let it slip through our fingertips and let it pass by. And you know there's a direct connection between the peace that is offered and the angel's song and maintaining the hope we have in the Messiah who has promised to come again and establish his kingdom here on earth. In the book of Titus, it's called the blessed hope. The full assurance that the Messiah will indeed return and will establish a kingdom of righteousness and justice for all eternity. And that will be our eternal home. And it is that hope that is to keep us going, to keep us focused on the Lord with great, great expectation. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this account of the birth of your Son and the announcement to the angels. Father, with the shepherds, we rejoice in what we have recorded here in your word, that you indeed have sent your Son to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and gives each of us personal salvation for all who will believe in you. And we thank you too, Father, for the hope that Jesus will indeed return 
and establish his kingdom of righteousness here on earth. May these things be enriched in our hearts, perhaps more than ever before this Christmas season. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.